We're in the last sermon in this series, and I am a big fan of the Old Testament. I love it. I think it's pretty cool. That's not true for everybody. Not everybody's a huge fan of what goes on in the Old Testament, because God can come across a little bit grouchy in the Old Testament, especially when you meet Jesus later, and you're like, wait, these two guys are supposed to be representing one another, and Jesus seems really friendly, turn the other cheek, and that Old Testament God, I don't know about him. So they stay away from the Old Testament, but we've anchored this sermon in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. In fact, if you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to turn there or turn your phone on and go to Exodus 34. I want to uh, show you this passage one more time. This is the last time we're going to read this um, in this series, but it's so good because it's the first time God describes himself. This isn't somebody else saying, this is what God is like. This is my experience of God. This is my take on God. This is how I understand God. This is God saying, this is who I am. So we're going right to the source. And so we get a pretty good indication of what God wants us to know about himself. It's, it's, it's very valuable. So Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. But I do want you to notice something. There's going to be a section in here, and we've drawn attention to it every time, but it's going to cause some of you to raise an eyebrow because it's going to sound like that Old Testament grouchy God, and a lot of people skip right past this because they don't like it, and we're going to key in on it today. In fact, I think the Bible should make you raise your eyebrow a lot. I think you should be reading in the morning when you you wake up with your cup of coffee and you should be like, hmm, that's a little confusing. I think if you're not ever confused by the Bible, I'm not sure that you're actually reading it right. The Bible is a strange book given to us by a God that we're sometimes unfamiliar with, communicating things that we have yet to understand. It should confuse us occasionally. That's a good sign. Being confused by the Bible is a good sign. Never being confused, I think, might mean that maybe you're just interpreting everything through your own filter and you're not actually taking God at his own word. Exodus 34, verse 6. This is what he says to Moses. Remember, we talked about this story a few weeks ago. Moses is up on the mountain with him. It's just Moses and God. And God's saying, here's my personality. Here's who I am. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Now, all that stuff is awesome. That is all good stuff. That is all stuff that we would turn into art and we would hang on our wall. That's all stuff we had underlined in our Bibles. That's all stuff that we really like about God. And then this next section comes a little bit like a blindside tackle because all this stuff was really good. We're like, go God, I'm on your side. I like this. And then he says this next part, and this is the confusing part. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Oof. Okay, I don't like that, especially if I feel guilty. He punishes the children. Whoa. Wait a second here. Don't touch our precious babies. He punishes the children and the children's children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Is this really necessary? If I were God's editor, if God said, hey, Patrick, will you take a quick look to, at this? It's a draft, first version. Tell me what you think. You got any notes? I would have some red marks here. I would be like, God, I don't think you need this because I think people struggle with uh, your reputation in the Old Testament. And so this really plays into that idea. So maybe we could just focus on the love, the forgiving part, the, the gracious part, the compassionate part, the slow to anger part. But maybe don't focus on the punishment part. That's not really going to play well with the test audience that we've gathered here. The focus group isn't going to like that very much. And especially 
actually punishing children. People don't really like punishing children. Some of you sadomasochists do, but most people don't really like punishing children. They definitely don't like punishing grandchildren. That's why you have grandchildren, so you don't have to punish them, so you can just give them all kinds of sugar and, and send them home. So it's, it's a little strange. I mean, other than that, five stars, God, I love that, but this punishment stuff, not sure I dig it. I'm not sure I'm into it. But the question we're asking about out of this series is what does God want us to know about who he is based on this description? There's an element of the character of God embedded in these ideas. Because remember, every week we said our lives are a reflection of what we believe about the character of God. If we believe God is generous to us, then it in turn makes us more generous people. If we believe God is kind to us, it makes us more kind. Which means sometimes when you look at Christians who are really mean and stingy and grouchy, and you must wonder what their idea of God is because it hasn't informed their character. So what do we learn about the character of God based on a passage like this? I want to make um, two points just to start us off here to give us a firm foothold in this text and, uh, and to try to wrap our minds around what God might be saying about himself here and how this is actually a good thing. This is good news. This is not bad. This is not something we have to explain away. You've probably seen some version of this. It's become kind of a popular thing to do, but because you can review um, any, anyone or anything on Yelp or Google, people, if they have a bad experience, they quickly go to the internet and they review negatively. I saw this, this sign. Come in and try the worst coffee one woman on TripAdvisor ever had in her life. The worst coffee. <laughs> Now, the reason this is genius is because most of us, if we had gotten that negative review, we would have tried to hide it, hide it, hide it, hide it, hide it, pretend it doesn't exist, try to flood it, try to complain about it, try to get the internet to, to remove it. But this person said, I'm going to advertise it. And they actually put this sign out there. People walking by was like, oh, I'm kind of interested in what one person thinks is the worst cup of coffee. And the genius of this is because that critics always overreact. The coffee obviously isn't going to be the worst cup of coffee, and so everybody else goes on TripAdvisor or Yelp or any Google or whatever, and they say, yeah, actually the coffee's pretty good, so they got a ton more positive reviews, and I thought this was such a genius response to what could have been a problem, and I'm always marveling at people who can look at a situation where the rest of us see doom and gloom and disaster, and they can see, like, actually this could be a good thing, and I think this text is like that. Most of us might read it and say, punishing grandchildren, I'm not liking that. I actually think it's a good thing, and I'll explain why. Two, two things to give us a foothold in this text. Number one, if we were to create God, if we were to make up God, we, if we were to describe God, we wouldn't include this. If you're trying to get people to buy into this idea of the reality of God, this isn't going to play well with your target demographic. It's too harsh. It doesn't seem fair. It even seems, it's funny because this idea of God punishing children and grandchildren even seems to mess with our biblically informed idea of what is right and wrong. It seems unfair. It even seems wrong. If we were to create a God, we wouldn't include this. But you know what? Number two, that's good news. If we were to create a God, we wouldn't include this, which means that maybe what we're reading, maybe the description we're reading of God is not one of human creation, because why would humans create a God that you really have to be confused by and wrestle with? Maybe we're reading about a God whose ways are higher than our ways, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts, who has a, an infinite understanding and knowledge of the universe and the world works, and maybe we have a small fraction of an understanding of the way the world works, and so maybe when we're confused 
used by God, we should pause and say, the problem might be on my end, not on God's. As a minister, sometimes people assume <laughs> that we never have any questions or doubts about God or Christianity. And hopefully this doesn't make you nervous, but I have questions. I have doubts. There's things where I'm like, just makes me scratch my head. And if God were to say, hey, Patrick, you'd like, would you like to get a cup of coffee? I have some things I would like to ask him that I don't understand. But I do make an assumption that I don't understand it, not that there's not a good explanation. The problem is on my end, not on God's. And I think one of the things that just Christians have to do and one of the things that we have to wrestle with is, is honestly, a lot of us probably have an idea of God who's just sort of a patchwork creation of our own notions, experiences, ideologies, popular culture. And we've just created this amalgamation that is not really God, but it's our own projections of God. And I actually think this is a little side note. I actually think a lot of people who are atheists who reject God, I think that they actually reject a version of God that I would also disagree with. But if they were to spend a little time struggling and wrestling and uh, trying to understand and unveil the scriptures, I think the idea that they would get of God is the one that they could accept and one that I would be, I would be comfortable with as well. I think me and a lot of atheists reject the same God, reject the same ideas of God. Anyway, let's dig into the text. Let's keep going here. Exodus 34, this is the second verse. It says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. At the beginning of the pandemic, when the schools all shut down, there was this scramble to try to figure out what do you do instead of having kids go to classes. There's online options, but it was a little bit of a mess to try to get kids educated in the middle of all that. I mean, you parents who went through that, you students who went through that, you remember they tried to do uh, gym class online, you know? I mean, just like, it's just, it was a little bit of a mess to try to figure that all out. But people were doing the best they can. They were doing the best that they could do. Uh, but at the end of the school year, there were kids who really deeply struggled with online school. So at the end of the 2020 school year, and they did not do well. Their grades went tanked. There were other kids who had kind of figured it out, who had access to Wi-Fi, who had a laptop, whose parents were there and able to support them. And those kids were able to do okay online. In fact, maybe their GPAs even went up. So you had kids whose GPAs probably went up and you had kids whose GPAs tanked. And so they were trying to figure out what do we do? How do we grade kids in the middle of all this when some kids are doing great and some kids are doing terrible? And I remember hearing from one kid in particular whose GPA actually went up and because they had worked really hard, they had been really diligent, and that GPA going up would have contributed to their scholarships and the schools that they were able to get into. And the school district was saying, hey, maybe we just won't hold anybody's grades against them. And some people were like, no, I worked hard. I want you to hold my grade against me. And other people were like, yes, please don't because it's awful and miserable and I didn't have access to a laptop. I didn't have access to Wi-Fi. So how do you make a rule that's fair for such different circumstances? And I actually think there's something similar in the text when he says, and he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Most of the time when I read scripture, I read it from the perspective of a guilty person because I'm a guilty person. Every time I see God's giving mercy, God's giving forgiveness, God's slow to anger, I'm like, whew, 
Thank you, God, because I need all of that. But you know what? There are people who have been deeply hurt by other humans in the world. And when we see all this talk of grace and forgiveness, it makes people feel like, wait a second, they literally did something terrible to me. I am suffering the consequences for it. And God, you're just saying they're going to be forgiven. They're going to skate. They're going to get off scot-free. And God comes into that. And he says, no, I will not leave the guilty unpunished. Because most of the time we read scripture from the perspective of a defendant on trial who knows they're guilty and is hoping for leniency from the jury and the judge. That's most of how we read scripture. But sometimes we need to understand scripture from the perspective of someone who has been wounded and hurt and, and wants justice. And this talk of mercy sounds wrong. And God says, no, 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 don't worry. I will not leave the guilty unpunished. And, and literally, the phrasing is there, I will not clear the guilty. And I think that's an important distinction. I will not clear the guilty. I'm not just going to say, you know what? You hurt a bunch of people. You caused a bunch of damage. You cre created havoc in relationships in the world around you. Never mind. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Just move on with your life. Because people who are the recipients of that hurt and that havoc are like, wait a second, God. That doesn't strike me as a very fair or just thing to do. And so God is saying, I'm not going to clear the guilty. I'm not going to clear the guilty. Remember, this is going to make me sound like I'm 100 years old, but there's trials that happen all the time that gather the national attention. But I remember the OJ trial, and I remember get, being gathered around a radio. That's the part that's going to make me sound old with a bunch of people because I wanted to hear what the jury was going to determine about OJ's guilt or innocence. And of course, there's been even more recent trials that have happened, and we want to hear. Not because we're confused about what justice actually is, but we want to make sure the judge and the jury got it right because we do want to see justice in the world i'm not going to clear the guilty I mean, I mean, that's what we want, right? Specifically when it's other guilty people. When it's us, we want him to clear the guilty. But when it's other guilty people, we want him to be just. And so what he's saying to the, the audience that's listening to him is he's saying, listen, you can trust me. I am a just God. And that can be hard to trust, but it's good news. It's good news that God is a just God. All right, let's keep going. Verse, the second part of verse 7. He will not clear the guilty. He punishes the children oof, and their children for the sin of the parents to the third or fourth generation. So if my grandfather robs a bank, does that mean I have to go to prison? Is that what this is all about? I mean, it sounds like that. I think there have been in the church some people who struggle with the idea of generational guilt or inherited guilt. And I think that's fading. I think we kind of understand that we sort of stand before God on our own. But there are people who really struggle with, like, I come from a family line that has really had some problematic behavior. And did I inherit that guilt because of their behavior? Uh, so it, this seems like it's supporting that idea. And it seems challenging. Now, just keep in mind that we're reading a text that was written in ancient Hebrew 3,500 years ago to people of a different culture on the other side of the world. It's okay for it to take just a little bit of work to help us understand what is being communicated here about the character of God. 
uh, I just want to give you three, and this is study mode, but I want you to give you three perspectives that I think help us understand this text. And I think this is, this is helpful for me. Number one, the word punish is an unhelpful translation. Now, not wrong, but it's unhelpful. I've told you before that Hebrew words do a lot of heavy lifting. So like one word can just mean a variety of things and be used in a variety of circumstances. Um, the word punish is actually an economic word or a math term. And so the vast majority of the time in scripture it's used, it's used to describe math or numbers. That's literally what it's used. And so some translations will say God doesn't, God counts the sin. But it also is a hospitality term. And it's a term that's often, more often than punished, translated visited. So you went and visited family for Thanksgiving or family came and visited you. The Hebrew people would use this term. And so literally what he's saying is God visits the sin of the parents on the children. Visits. So knock, knock, knock. Who's there? Grandpa's sin. Hey, don't answer it. Pretend we're not home. That's more the idea. But you can understand how this word might be used in a variety of circumstances. God visits the sin of the parents on the children and grandchildren. That doesn't solve our problem, but we're, we're starting to get there. The second thing in the text, the study thing that we need to understand, is the word generations just isn't there. It just doesn't exist in the Hebrew. It's literally God visits the sin of the parents on the children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth. There's no word generations. The translators were trying to be helpful, and they're like, well, children and children's children, that's a generation, so that's probably what he's meaning, but it doesn't exist. And third and fourth is a Hebrew idiom, which you'll see several times throughout Scripture, that just means several or few. So he's literally saying he visits the children and their children for the sin of the parents for a few generations. That's, that's helpful to know. And then, of course, it's really helpful to know it's in contrast to thousands. So a few generations versus thousands of generations. This is important because we do this with a lot of Bible texts. We take something that's supposed to be positive and we make it negative. And I kind of like the opposite of the sign, taking something negative and making it positive. We often read the Bible in a negative light that's intended to be a, a positive thing. Because remember, visit is a math term. And so God visits his love for millennia. His love spreads generation after generation after generation for centuries, but the power of sin will affect a few generations. And so when you read that that way, you're like, oh, this is actually good news that God limits the power of sin, but it is an un unlimited expression of his love. But we read it kind of the opposite. Like, wait a second, am I getting in trouble for my dad, what he did? I might have to suffer for it. It's kind of like if somebody said, hey, I bought you a brand new Tesla and I paid all the taxes for it and I bought you gas for the next 20 years. I bought you a brand new Tesla. Only catch is you have to go over to Minnetonka and pick it up at the Tesla dealership. If your response were to be like, oh, great, Minnetonka, that's like 30 minutes away, and if there's traffic, it's going to be even worse, and how am I supposed to get over there and, and pick it up? Then what do I do with the car that I drove over there? I mean, what a burden it is for you to have blessed me with this car. That's exactly what this passage is doing when we read it the way we typically read it. God is saying, I will not allow sin to destroy generation after generation after generation after generation, but I will allow my love to spread throughout millennia and we read it and we're like oh god why would you do that it's the opposite of what he intended for us to understand based on this passage we took good news and made it bad news 
So here is my humbly submitted paraphrase of what this verse could mean. He maintains love for thousands of generations, but he only visits the children and grandchildren for the sin of the parents for a few generations. Parents, that's good news. That's good news. Unless you're a perfect parent, that is good news. You can only mess up your family lineage so far. <laughs> you can only mess up your kids and grandkids, but God's like, I won't let you mess up any further than that. You can only mess up your children and maybe your grandchildren, just a few, maybe three or four, but too much further than that, we're not going to let you have that power. And I think that's good news. And not to bury the lead here, but there are a lot of verses throughout the Old Testament, ones that Moses composed as well, that say children do not suffer the guilt, the actual guilt of their parents. So if you want to read those verses later, you can read those. It's, it's a great passage, great vivid description in Ezekiel where the children's teeth are not set on edge by the parents eating sour grapes. And, and anyway, it's a whole thing. Parents, we know that our behavior affects our kids. Have you ever had your kids do something and it just made you so mad? And then your spouse pointed out like, oh, that's exactly what you do. And now you're mad at your spouse, too. <laughs> we know our parents' choices affected us. We know that. It's not a surprise. It's not a shock. It shouldn't be a shock that God says, hey, your sin will visit your children and your grandchildren for a few generations. That shouldn't be a surprise to us. We shouldn't argue with that because it's true. We've seen it true. There are whole systems of therapy built on this idea. Family systems of therapy where you go in and you say, hey, doc, I, I'm depressed. And they're like, well, tell me about your dad. And you're like, what does my dad have to do with it? Well, pretty much everything. <laughs> I think I can recall the exact moment in time that my frontal lobes developed. And some of you know what this is. Your frontal lobes develop. It's kind of when you realize that your behavior has consequences. That's kind of the same thing at the same time. And I was about, I was in my mid-20s. I was married. I had a child. I had revisited my, my camp that I grew up going to, my Bible camp that I grew up going to in Northern California. And it went along a stream. And that was beautiful. It was like a park. And there was this creek. And so they cleverly named the camp Camp Park Creek. And there was this beautiful stream. And then this one part, there was this waterfall that over, you know, thousands of years had bored out a hole. And if you jumped and landed just right, you could miss all the rocks and trees and whatever shrubbery was going on around you. And you could land in a creek and you could, you know, not kill yourself. And I remember I had done this when I was 17. I had done this when I was 18. And I go back at 25 and we hike up to this spot and I go right up to the edge. And I'm like, I'm so excited. This is going to be a lot of fun. And I get right to the edge and I think I can't wait to jump and then something happened. My frontal lobes closed at that exact moment. And I thought, hey, you know what? I have a wife. What would happen if I miss and, you know, crack my skull open? I have a daughter. Hmm. I wonder what would happen to her if I killed myself doing this. Weird. I've never had these thoughts before. This is all new. Hey, I don't have any health insurance. I don't have any life insurance. And you know what I did? And this is so counterintuitive to my personality is I climbed down off the cliff and just sat down there like a like an old man. Okay. Well, that moment of my life is over. I truly believe this. We should throw a party for people when their frontal lobes close. You know, I'm 
serious. Like cake, balloons, confetti, like, hey, welcome to humanity. We're so glad you've made it. We didn't think you were going to make it and you made it. And now you understand that your behavior affects other people. Make better choices. It should be a party. And I think we know, we generally know our behavior impacts the people around us, but I don't think we grasp how broad this reality is. Most, most modern Western humans use the concept of the harm principle to determine moral choices. You guys know what that is. The harm principle is, well, if it doesn't cause anybody else any harm, then I should be free to do it. It's a terrible way to determine morality, but it just is accepted across the board in our society. Well, if it doesn't cause anybody else harm, then I should do it. Here's why it's a terrible standard for morality. Number one, humans are terrible at knowing what actually causes harm to the people around them. We're really bad at it. We should assume that the things we do that are negative cause harm to the people around us, whether or not we can understand exactly how. We're terrible at assessing that. But secondly, and here's the important thing, when we make bad moral decisions, it causes us harm. When our character is not good, that causes harm to other people. See, that's the thing that we don't understand with the concept of the harm principle when you're talking about ethical choices and ethical dilemmas. Our personal character or our lack thereof impacts others. I asked my mom if I could share this story with you because I wanted you to know this is kind of personal to her and I guess I suppose to me. And she said if she had been sharing the testimonies during Bible class, she would have talked about this. So she said it was okay for me to share. Uh, my mom's a twin. Uh, there's a really funny story about my, uh, <laughs> my, my aunt showing up to church one time and somebody getting very confused about her behavior and why she was being rude. And it was because it was her twin and she didn't know who you were. But when she was four years old, about four years old, we think. We weren't sure, four or five. My mom, her twin sister, and then two younger sisters below them, younger than them. And my grandfather abandoned the family when they were that young. Do you think that perhaps his abandonment had a negative impact on her life? I mean, you don't even have to know the particulars of the story to know that it did. Of course it did. Of course, she would grow up with questions about, like, why? Kids struggle. Did I do something? What happened? Did I inherit some of those negative traits that, that he had? I mean, what, what was going on? In fact, they were pretty poor before this. They were destitute after it. And they had to wear, you know, clothes that didn't fit to school. And if you can imagine already a child who has a little bit of an uphill battle in terms of their self-acceptance and their self-esteem and their place in the world, and they have to go to school at a place where other kids who are scrambling for their own place in the world are going to make fun of them and they have ill-fitting clothes and my grandmother would get them dressed and she would recite this little poem to help them feel better about the fact that their shirts were too short in a, in a day where halter tops were not okay to wear and their pants were too short and nothing fit quite right and everything was second hand. She had this little poem that she would recite to them and if you ever need some parenting help I can share that poem with you. But how sad is that when the parent has to try to like make it okay when it's, it's not okay. It isn't okay. And my mom grew up with that. It's the way it is, but that had an impact on her. Let me ask you a question. None of us are therapists here, I don't think. Do you think the way my mom grew up, based on the choices my grandfather made, had an impact on how my mom parented me? Yeah. Do you, do you think that maybe my grandfather's sin affected the children and the grandchildren? 
hey, where's, uh, we got, we got grandma here, but where's, where's grandpa at Christmas and Thanksgiving? What's, What's, what's going on with that, Mom? And do you think maybe that some of the ways that she tried to compensate for her father abandoning her probably showed up in potentially unhealthy ways? When Karina and I got married, I was 22, and my grandfather had made a reappearance. I'll tell you about that in just a second. But he came to our wedding with his, his new wife. And the ushers, oh, you're Patrick's grandfather? Oh, you sit here. Oh, you're Patrick's grandmother? Oh, oh, you sit here as well. Fireworks, drama, conflict. The choices that he had made decades before were still showing up in, in, my, in my life, at my wedding. My grandfather was 26 years old when he left my mom and her sisters. 26. Frontal lobes, right? 26. Do you think there is a 26-year-old in the universe that is thinking about their grandkids and what this choice might do to them? It's almost as if God knew what he was talking about when he says, I will allow the parents' sins and the grandparents' sins to be visited on the children and their children's children, but I'm going to limit the effects, but I will allow it. Almost as if God knew what he was talking about. Huh, interesting. Interesting. And so parents, 26-year-olds, 19-year-olds, if you want to set your children and your grandchildren up for success, it is not about a savings account. It's not about square footage. It's not about having enough presents under the tree. It's not about having an Instagram-worthy Thanksgiving picture that everybody looks happy and they're wearing matching flannels. It's about none of that. It's about your character. That's the thing that will have an impact on generation after generation. In fact, I believe what God is saying in this passage is that character will impact potentially millennia. Your sin will dig a hole for your children. That may make the hill a little steeper to climb, but your character, man, your character will give them a head start. Your character. Not just their character, your character. It's important to know that because of God's goodness um, and because of my grandmother who struggled with bitterness, but my grandfather's story has a redemptive arc. Season two was better than season one. And uh, he came back into my mom and her sister's lives when they were adults. And because of their relationship with God, they were able to offer him forgiveness. And so as a teenager, I began to learn who my grandfather was. God can take a negative thing and make it positive. One of my first jobs ever was at a company where my grandfather actually worked. And so for one of my first jobs, I had my grandfather able to mentor me in that job. I mean, how, how cool is that after some of the negative choices he had made? He became an important part of his church and his new wife became a, another grandmother to me. Now, this doesn't mean that we should go around leaving our families. So maybe there can be blessings later on in life, but God can take that. He can take that. And for thousands of generations, he can make something good. Your sin will do damage. But God's going to limit the amount of damage that it will do because God is a loving, gracious, kind God. And my grandfather m missed a lot. He added some rungs on the ladder for his children to climb. He did. But the end of the story is good. Because of God, sin is never the end of the story. Sin is never the end of the story, and that's good. 
He maintains love to thousands. I was able to do, to do his funeral, to conduct his funeral. And it was a joy to do because of the fact that he had allowed God to redeem his story. It was a joy. And, that, and that's true. That's potentially true for all of us. Your sin will already affect your children. It will already affect your grandchildren. But because God is good, your goodness, your character done because of God will affect millennia. That's good news. I want us to contemplate that. I want us to contemplate our children, our grandchildren, our own character. The reality that we serve a loving God, a good God, who's going to maintain love to thousands and limit the power of sin to a few generations.